Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to another episode of Chat with Traders. Thank you so much for tuning in, and let's do this. So, the trader I interviewed for this episode is Ryan Moffat from Black Pear Capital in Knoxville, Tennessee. Having been involved with markets for about 12 years, Ryan has experience in trading, strategy design, portfolio construction, and even alternative investments, all while working for several firms, one of which managed upwards of $2 billion. More recently though, Ryan's ventured out to start a fund of his own, where he wears the badge of lead investment manager. Some of the subjects we check off during this episode include the snapping point that led Ryan to pursue trading and cold call 50 fund managers for guidance how he was able to form various mentoring relationships, the first steps of starting a fund and the unseen challenges that came along with it. Plus, we discuss options, strategies, and research. But my favorite part is probably Ryan's insight on deliberate practice and recognizing mental discomfort as a positive. So stick around, folks, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Aaron Firefield, and here is my guest, Ryan Moffat. All right, Ryan, well, awesome to have you on the podcast, man. Thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, it's great to be here. Exciting. Cool, cool. So the first question I want to ask you is about how you got started in markets. Like what was your introduction? What happened? Tell us a bit about where this all started for you. I think it was roughly about 10 years ago. Yeah, it was. It was um, about 10, well, actually... It's probably about 11 years ago now, and uh, maybe 11, 12 years ago. And um, before then, I was actually in uh, land development. So worked in land development sales, and um, it was a great job. I knew it wasn't something that was my be-all, end-all. And for me, I was um, really looking for something, you know, what was I passionate about and kind of looking around and, and trying to figure out really what my next step was. And one thing I did is I really looked at really to see what, you know, what I read, uh, you know, people think, you know, when you're in a bookstore, what do you gravitate to? You know, what type of movies do you like? Um, and I was getting really kind of frustrated with where I was. Um, and it was kind of interesting because 
what happened within my land development is is I left the company I was with and I started another company with my uh, with my partner who was also working at the the company I was with and we started our own company it was kind of the, in the same kind of real estate uh, type deal but really my mindset at that time was I want to make a lot of money so then I can do what I want to do which is kind of an interesting mindset um, and what you'll, I'll find out later is that's kind of a backwards way to think. But so as you can probably imagine, anytime you start a company with that mindset with, uh, you know, we, we had some ideas, but nothing really crystallized. We totally failed miserably on our face. And so, you know, I made good money when I was in land development and pretty much gave it all back and lost it all. So we were in the red. And at that point I had a, um, I had my wife and then we had a, a six month old, my son, Jack, um, so at that point, I was very, very frustrated. And I was looking again, I got to the point in my life where I was kind of thinking, all right, instead of really going out and trying to just make a ton of money so then I could do what I want to do, why don't I just figure out really what I want to do and then do that? Because at least if I didn't make a lot of money, at least I'd be doing what I want to do. And so that's when I really went on this process. Uh, and it took a while. It took a few weeks. And, uh, you know, kind of a funny story. I got to the point where, and Aaron, I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm sure some people have been there where you, you get so frustrated um, and you've, you've failed so much. It's kind of a, a funny story crystallized and burned in my memory. I was, at a, I was at a car wash. And I don't know if you guys have these in Australia, but, you know, we have these car washes where you basically pull your, your car in and you, you can vacuum it out and everything. Well, I had a, a, a Tahoe, uh, a, a Chevy Tahoe, and I was vacuuming it out. And I was so frustrated. Everything, all this failure hit me at one point. And I started beating the hell out of the, my Tahoe with this rubber hose because I was so frustrated. And everything just hit me. And it's hilarious because the lady next to me looked at me like I was crazy because at that point I really was. You know, it's just, it's just so frustrated with everything. But that was a turning point for me, kind of a low point, but also a turning point where that's when I really figured out I need to find something that I love and I'm passionate about. And so I did start going on this journey. And, you know, I call it park bench days where you go and you sit and you're like, what do I need to do with my life. And that's when I, I, you know, I got some help with my wife, asked her, you know, what do you see me doing? And she's like, well, you read old finance books for fun. You know, you read about hedge fund managers constantly and you love watching the markets. You've always loved doing this. So why don't you, you know, she's, she's kind of said, why don't you try something in, in that regard? Why don't you just do that? And to me, you know, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, you know, there aren't hedge fund managers running around in Knoxville, Tennessee. So in my mind, it was just something that was way far off that I couldn't do. I just something that I really loved, but I probably wouldn't ever be able to do in my life. Well, at that point, I started making, stopped making that excuse for myself. And, and then, you know, again, another thing burned in my memory is I saw an old PBS documentary of Paul Tudor Jones. It's Trader, which most traders have probably seen it. It's, it's the best uh, of all because you're seeing a guy that is completely passionate about what he does, um, about the markets, but also about philanthropy. But it, it's right in his prime. And you're seeing this guy. And what's so great about this documentary, it shows him you know, at the heights, but also it shows him get crushed by these trades and how he handles it. And it shows you one of the best traders in the world ever 
it shows you how he handles this and, and it shows you just like I would handle it or anyone else to where, I mean, it, it hurts to lose. And so I saw this and as soon as I saw it, I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to be in the markets like that. You know, I want to run a private fund. I don't care what it takes. And that is really kind of what started me on the journey 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. Um, and then from that point on, I knew what I wanted to do. And, and, and from that point, it's taken me a long time to get there. I've gone several different steps to get there, you know, through different firms. Um, you know, I ended up getting my MBA in finance and, and portfolio management and went and, and did all that. Um, but really, well, the biggest thing that I did that helped me was at that point, again, being in Knoxville, Tennessee, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, access to you know fund managers. So I actually cold called 50 fund managers, 50 hedge fund managers around the country. And three of them called me back. And two of them actually still mentor me to this day. So that's kind of a, you know, a long answer to a short question. But that was kind of my start into the markets and, and really when I figured out exactly what I want to do. Yeah, that's a really great answer, Ryan. And an interesting... Um uh, an interesting story as well. So a couple of things I want to ask you about that is actually one thing I've got to add before I forget is that anyone listening who hasn't seen that documentary of Paul Tudor Jones, which is called Trader, um, you've definitely got to check that out. Uh, I'll, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. I'll find a link and I'll stick it in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com. So if you haven't seen it, do watch that. And I like how you said that it also shows him, um, you know, at his highs and at his lows as well. I mean, it's, it's some moments are quite raw. So yeah, really good documentary. Yeah, it's incredible. So while you were at the land development place, were you doing any sort of trading or investing just sort of on your own? Yeah, I mean, I was, and I, I always, you know, even you know, through college, um, actually, in undergrad, I played baseball at the University of Tennessee. Even in high school, I always followed the markets. It was always something that I loved to read about, to do. And so, while I was uh, really in, in the land development game, I, I, I would have because the one thing I always have done is journal. And so, now whether it's a, a trading journal or just journaling, you know, for the day. I can go back because I've got four or five journals filled so I can look back 15, 20 years ago and still see well, I wrote down some stocks that I need to look at or wrote down some sectors I need to look at or different trading strategies that I need to look at. So it's pretty neat to go back and see that. And that's one reason I've always done it. But yes, I mean, throughout that, I would always kind of on the back burner, nothing, obviously nowhere near what I'm doing now, but it was always kind of on the back burner of something that I always love to do. So absolutely, I, I, I kind of participated it, I guess, as a, you could say as a hobby then, because obviously I was getting paid to be in more in the land development, but it was definitely something that was part of my life. Okay. Okay. Sure. So tell us a little bit about once you, you said that you cold called about 50 different fund managers. What were some of those conversations like? What were you actually talking to them about once you got on the phone with these guys? Well, the three that uh, called me or emailed me or contacted me back um, was, uh, it was pretty interesting and it was, it was, it's very, it's very interesting, but the difference between the three um, and I actually talked to a few more, but Three of them were just incredibly um, giving in what they're doing. And, and I guess with the cold calling and me being extremely, extremely persistent, um, they kind of saw that I wasn't going to go away. So th they need to kind of talk to me or I was going to continue to call um, and kind of bug them. So, you know, once we're really kind of talking to them, you know, just really picking the brand. Because at that point, I really didn't know, uh, you know, uh, 
looking at it, looking back at it now, I didn't know anything then, really. So I really didn't know that even the, the right questions to ask. So really, I was just really kind of picking the brain on how to even get started. Where do I need to go? I mean, how, what does their strategies consist of? And that's really kind of where the conversations led once I started getting a feel for um, what they were doing. I mean, these were guys out of the CBOE, um, uh, Chicago Boards Option Exchange, guys out of New York. And, and so... They were, on some respects, they were really options traders, but then trend-following traders that use futures as well. So those were the two strategies that I really keyed in on. Um, and, and another reason I really keyed in on, because really I was talking with them along the same lines, or at, along the same time that I was uh, in the MBA program, getting my MBA. And so it was very interesting, the contrast between talking to the fund managers and then talking to my professors, and the huge contrast between how they managed risk, um, how they looked at strategy. And so that was extremely interesting um, and a huge learning curve, very sharp learning curve for me. Um, so that's really kind of how it kind of snowballed is at first, I really didn't know the questions to ask. I mean, I was probably asking pretty stupid questions, um, but they were extremely giving with their time. And again, it was, it, I think a big part of it was just me being persistent. But again, it's knowing what I wanted to do with my life at that point. So doing whatever it took to do that. Okay. So tell us about what happened sort of following those initial calls. Like I think you touched on a little bit earlier, you went and you worked with a few firms um, for a few years that followed. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What happened there? So we, so really with the uh, companies, I uh, interned with one of the fund managers and that was an incredible learning experience because um, not only did I get to learn a lot about uh, the strategy, um, but I learned about the business too. So the internship, which was about three or four months um, before I really graduated with my MBA. And then once I got my MBA, I actually went and worked for an institutional, uh, really advisory firm. So it was a little bit off of what I wanted to do, but I knew that I had to, I knew that I had to learn the business and it was an incredible firm. It was about a 13 person firm. They managed about $2 billion. And it was incredible because it was not so much strategy to learn from that, but the operations part of learning, the business behind learning a firm or, or running a firm. And I learned how to clear 2,000 trades in a day, learned, learned really the back office stuff of how Wall Street works, you know, working with guys out of Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or Fidelity or State Street and learned the more institutional game. And this was pretty interesting because I learned institutionally how portfolios and traditional portfolios were set up. And then, and while that was happening, I was also still continuing working with my mentors more on strategy. And so what I would see is the difference between how my mentors went about strategy, meaning they generally traded their own money. And if they traded their own money, they had to have robust strategies that did well in all kinds of different environments versus the institutional traditional portfolio where generally you're going to be your stocks and bonds. And, and they're really set up as a long only portfolio, right? It, it's only going to do well when the, when the equities markets or bond markets go up. And so really kind of putting those two together and, and you know, f flash forward seven, eight, nine years, and that's really how our key strategy at Blackbeard Capital, that's where it came from, is putting those two together and filling the gaps in the traditional portfolio with really the, 
the uh, robust strategies that my mentors were using, and, and that's util- utilizing options. So that's what I kind of worked with them for years, um, side by side, while working at this institutional firm. And testing a bunch of strategies out, and and you know, Aaron, you know as well as I do, and most traders out there is you kind of kind of do it by yourself and learn by losing a lot of money, and, and God knows I've lost a ton of money, um, but those are the learning experiences that that let you kind of move forward in the trading game. So that was kind of how it worked in tandem, kind of moving forward. I was at the institutional firm for about four years, um, and then kind of moved on from there as my trading uh, and kind of knowledge of trading kind of grew. Okay. So while you were at the institutional firm, was there anything like you'd originally expected and did your perception of the industry change in any way over those four years? Absolutely. That's a great question because that was one of the biggest things that was a change in me. I think one of the biggest things that changed was me thinking that there was this special sauce somewhere that I wasn't getting where I was, or I needed to go work at a certain place to learn something. And that that's very well maybe with strategy, but what I really learned is I knew more than I thought I did. And that one, another thing I learned is the, the industry is not a well-oiled machine by any means. Um, it is amazing. Uh, a lot of times you, you kind of feel like it's put together with, with duct tape and coat hangers almost. Like it's, it's kind of a, uh, uh, an interesting industry that it's, 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 again, not just a well-oiled machine. So I think my perspective on that. And then really working at the institutional firm and working with my mentors, I, one of the perspective changes is I started to figure out that I could do this professionally. Um, looking around and looking at a firm that's running $2 billion, it just it gave me confidence to, to know I can do this. And it takes time. But, you know, knowing, uh, you know, I was mentored by the founder of this institutional firm, which he was absolutely incredible and continues to be incredible, but helps me working with relationships, with raising money, um, and then just figuring out the game and figuring out the business, um, and then putting that together with my mentor's strategy and, and just kind of working those two. So I, I would say over those four years, it's just maturing a little bit and getting confidence enough to knowing that. I could do this professionally. So I think that's the biggest change in me that happened over those four years. Okay. Okay. So I'm really keen to ask you about how the fund actually got up and going. But before we get into that too far, I really want to ask you about the mentoring aspect because you've mentioned it a few times throughout our chat right now. You know, you've mentioned mentors as though there's a few of these guys. So you've said that you worked with one of them the other guys, what's their incentive to actually help you and, and support you? And I, and I ask this because, you know, a lot of traders wish that they had someone in their life who played a mentor-like figure. So I'm just trying to sort of understand why these mentors were willing to help you and how that sort of relationship came to be a mentoring type of relationship. Yeah, that's... Um that's a good question because really before I, I got in this, that's I saw and read a lot of biographies, um, listened to a lot of uh, people talking, and they always talked about mentors. And really, until this time, I never really I had some in different parts of my life, but not really professionally. And then. I think a, a couple of things, and I've had a lot of mentors, and they've played different roles in my life. And some of my first ones that really I cold called. And I think a big part of it was them seeing that 
someone was really willing to do the work to acquire knowledge. And also, I did, I did uh, projects for them. I mean, I would build uh, different Excel projects to help them out. So uh, they were getting something from me, but I was willing to do anything I could in order to get knowledge. And so uh, at that point, obviously, with me going through the MBA program, we would work all the time on huge Excel projects. And it's absolutely incredible what you can build out of there. And so I would build them models, um, Excel models, to help them out and, and kind of tit for tat, you know, they would work with me on strategy. And then once you kind of develop the relationship, then it's not so much of what are you giving me or what am I giving you? It's just kind of working together at that point. Other mentors I've paid, you know, I've had some mentors that they charged so much. Um, but what's kind of interesting is once the relationship did get started as well, that kind of went to the wayside as well. And, and now you're just kind of working together or doing projects together um, or really doing anything to help each other out. And I think a lot of it is, um, and we see it now too with us working with other people as well, you know, when you, when you find someone that's willing to do the work and you find someone that is, you know, uh, extremely persistent and focused on what they're doing, you want to help them out. Um, everyone's been there. And so I know I do, and I, my mentors did the same thing. So it's a little bit of both. Um, but a lot of times you, you do have to break the ice and get in there. Um, and whether that's some mentors, you know, are paid, some of them, you know, maybe you can do a project for, that's really how I broke the ice with some of my mentors. So, you know, with somebody looking for somebody, just ask. I mean, that's that's the big thing. And um, for me, I was like a, a lot of times afraid just to ask. But you know, once I really found out was really what I want to do with my life, I, I wasn't afraid to ask anymore. I knew I had to do something to get in front of these guys. So um, you know, a little bit of both, and, and be creative. That's what I had to do, um, and it and it worked out extremely well. No doubt. And just just to add on to that a little bit more. Was your relationship with these guys, like you're referring to them as mentors in our conversation here, were they ever, did you ever like call them a mentor? Like, was there ever a point where you said, will you be my mentor? Or was it really just a relationship that kind of developed? Yeah, it was, it was really just a relationship that developed. Um, and it was almost like after, you know, a few months or a year goes by, it's like, I, I, you just kind of look back and say, wow, he really took me from here to there. But, but on some respect too, it's, you, it's, it's a relationship to where, you know, they're getting a lot from it just as much as you're getting. And so, you know, now that you ask a question, I never really thought about it, but no, I never was like, you are mentoring me at this point. It was never that, uh, I guess, defined. So it was more just a relationship. And, and two, again, it wasn't like we had something scheduled every day either. It was like if I needed a, a help with something or they needed a project. or So it was kind of an ongoing thing with, with some of them. Some of them was a little bit more scheduled. Uh, obviously, the ones I worked for and, 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 and worked with. Um, but you know, with the ones that I really cold called and, and worked with over years, you know, there might be months that go by. And then you know, we, we send an email or something just to catch up with them and say, Hey, we're working on this project. You know, I just wanted to get your feedback on that. And so it, it, I guess it was, never was really defined as mentor mentee, but it was more just a relationship, uh, kind of moving forward. 
Yeah. Now that's really interesting to hear that. And it might've been a bit of a strange question, but I just asked it because I think there's a bit of a misconception that to get a mentor, you've actually got to ask someone explicitly, will you be my mentor? And I actually recently wrote a short guide about this. So guys listening, if you want to check that out, uh, it's called the Comprehensive Guide to Trading Mentorship. And you can download it for free at chatwithtraders.com forward slash mentor. Yeah, so moving on, let's talk about how you actually started the fund. So at what point did you feel confident to start the fund and what were the, some of the first steps you took? Yeah, that's pretty interesting because that really happened. So fast forward, so obviously I I guess cold called these, these managers was about 11 years ago. So fast forward nine years to where now we're about 2013, uh, 2014. And that's how long it took me to really get to the point where I felt comfortable asking for other people's money. Um, and it took that long because I needed to, to lose a lot of money. I need to lose in every way possible. So I'd figure out, you know, actually how, uh, to move forward with it and do well. Um, so that was a big part of it. And then really, I guess what pushed me forward was, getting to the point where I see people around me, um, kind of like, like I was saying, working with the institutional firm and working with those guys and how they started. And a lot of it is just, just starting. Uh, and really the, the amount that I started with, um, outside money was, was $30,000 and that's it. And that was the most nerve wracking $30,000 I've ever taken. Because to me at that point, it was, it could have been $30 million or $300 million um, because it was somebody else's money. And now I'm dealing with somebody else's emotions, somebody else's expectations. Um, and for me, I'm very, very hard on myself, probably more harder than other people are, are going to be on me. So that was very difficult. And so that was kind of the first step into, I guess, the professional realm, if you can call it that, with $30,000. But you know, I did have another person's money. So I guess that first step was, uh, where, and it's kind of interesting because when I took that first step, it kind of led me into a whole different ball game of now I had to figure out, okay, well, if it's somebody else's money, now you have to figure out the business behind that, right? You have to get the documents behind that. You have to get everything surrounding it. And so what a lot of people, what's very interesting is when you're dealing with other people's money, almost the easiest thing, the easiest part about it is the trading, the strategy. That's the easiest part. The, the hard part is dealing with other people. The hard part's the business part. Now, I love both the parts of it. They're both extremely interesting to me, but I had to learn that other part. Um, and I was around at the institutional uh, firm and, and working with my mentors, but doing it yourself is a totally different ball game. So that was kind of the start of it. And then kind of scaling it up from there. So, you know, turning thousands of dollars into millions of dollars um, and doing it that way, but also being comfortable scaling up. And that really happened about a year and a half ago um, when we did, uh, me and I had uh, Tyler, who is my uh, full time trader in research here, we did a lot of work on ourselves. Um, 
self-development, but also on our strategy, because we understood that if we're going to scale this up to where we can do the most good for the most people, we had to be extremely comfortable uh, in scaling this thing up. And and you got to think about uh, everything from execution um, to dealing with uh, all the limited partners. So you got to deal with the entire gambit. And so from the $30,000 mark up onto the millions mark, there was there was about you know about a, a six month span where we did a lot of work six to nine month span on ourselves on the strategy that that once we really got comfortable it's like it's like a flip a switch flipped and uh, money started coming in more regularly we started uh, being a lot more clear on what we do what value add we have for people um, and a lot of that came with clarity with our within ourselves. So again, long answer to a short question, but I don't know if that really answered the question uh, you're asking, but that's kind of how we kind of led into a little bit more where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. No, that definitely answered it. So I'm, I'm interested to know, where did you get that first $30,000 from? Was that someone you knew or was it complete, a, almost a complete stranger? No, it was family. It was my sister. Okay. So okay. yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It, you know, it's... Um, so yeah, I mean it's you know uh, friends, family, and fools, right? I mean that's how you how you get your uh, your start. Um, but yeah, um, it, it really started with with family, um, and then from that point on, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of extremely uh, rich friends, so I had to get outside of that very very quickly. Um, but what that forced us to do very very quickly was we had to figure out what our edge was um, versus everyone else and why we were different. And that really forced us to do a, a lot of extremely hard work uh, on ourselves and on our strategy. And that was the best thing that could have happened to us um, is have those constraints on us. I mean, creative constraints pretty much to where it, it, we, we only had, uh, we didn't have all the means and resources. We had to be very, very clear and focused on what we were going to do and how we were going to add value to people. And so uh, us doing that, and once we got clear again, it's when uh, people started coming to the fund um, and and we started growing this thing. So okay. And did you have any sort of track record that you had built up yourself before actually opening the doors to your fund, or was it something you sort of built on the fly? Yeah, I mean, we had. Um, I mean, we had a personal track record, just proprietary funds. I did that. Um, so I did have a track record move forward, but really, you know, with, with our people coming in, it wasn't so much of results. It's them buying into the process of what we're doing because, you know, Aaron and, and every trader out there, the results are going to come and go depending on what your strategy, not no strategy does well all the time. And so knowing your process well enough to know when it's going to do well and when it's not going to, not going to do well, or if you've got multiple strategies, when they're going to pair together and having complete clarity in that. And that's really, I mean, our clients and limited partners, they're great because they buy into the process. Uh, and that way, uh, when you have your drawdowns or when, when times are, are a little bit tougher, they understand why. I mean, we, we kind of liken it to, you know, when, when you're flying in an airplane and you feel and you feel turbulence, you're not just going to jump out of the airplane in midair, right? You're just not going to do it. 
and it's interesting how pilots they can feel all kinds of turbulence. They don't really they don't really care too much because they're very very familiar with the airplane. They're f- very familiar with how to how to fly the airplane. They probably know every nuts you know all, all the bolts, all the screws, everything, every part of that airplane. Well, that's what we try to do with our clients and limited partners is they should know the strategy just as well as us. So they'll know when it's going to do well and when it's not going to do well. And so that's what we really try to do is have that clarity um, for them. And, and, and I think that's, when, again, when, when partners really started to gravitate is when we really were clear on the process. Um, we did have uh, a track record, and then obviously we've got a ton of back-tested results. But it is. It's just knowing when it's going to do well, when it's not going to do as well, and being comfortable with that. And in, with our strategy, it, it, it it's, serves a certain purpose in a portfolio for our clients. Um, so we want to be very clear on, on what that purpose is and what, we, what the strategy was created for. And that's really what they're buying into. Okay. I like the way you put that. That's really good. One thing I'd like to ask is what's been some of the challenges of starting a firm that you maybe didn't anticipate going into this? Uh, that's, it's, it's kind of just kind of like the question of, uh, you know, what questions did I ask my mentors? And it was almost like, I didn't even know the right questions to ask, you know, in starting a firm, uh, I, you don't really know, you don't know what you don't know. And so the expectations, you know, you always want to expect the, you know, expect a, the best, but I guess one of the biggest ones is, is especially over the last year and a half is, learning about the f- the private fund industry and the hedge fund industry and seeing actually how it works and how it operates and when you're running a fund that's less than 100 million dollars you know you, you don't get a whole lot of looks from people it's it's amazing the industry where the big funds get bigger and everyone else just kind of languishes a little bit but also what's very interesting is how you see within the the fund industry where a lot of the funds generally are really just stock long only funds you know they're they're formed as a limited partnership but in essence they're really just kind of a long only fund and you see that a lot and I, that really kind of surprised me you know before i got into this i always thought hedge funds you know you're you're going to be have an esoteric strategy that you're not able to get you know anywhere else but that's really not the case. You know, we utilize options and, and, and we do well in actually volatile environments and we do well when equities don't do well. So we are a little bit more esoteric and that's why we have it in a private partnership. But it's really interesting. The industry is um, a lot of stock pickers. Um, a lot, it's a lot of fundamentals. And I guess that's another thing as well that was a little bit surprising to me that how quantitative or mechanical strategies um, aren't looked down upon, but they're not as favorable to institutions. Uh, they're not as favorable uh, to some family offices. Um, they're still looking for more the fundamentals uh, uh, type stock picking, which that was kind of a surprise to me because I thought I thought it would be just the opposite because we are a mechanical strategy, um, so we're more data uh, data driven. Um, so. I guess that was a couple things that were a little bit surprising to me, just just with just running a private fund. Um, with a firm, the, <laughs> the biggest thing surprise is how much other stuff you do besides trading. Um, 
it's very interesting. My week consists of when we have a busy week trading, we trade, it, it lasts us about 30 minutes during the week. Now, obviously we don't have a, an intraday strategy or anything, but we just, you know, all our work is done on the research, the back testing. So our trading is very, very, very boring, um, extremely boring. And that's the way we feel it should be, uh, because if it's exciting, then we're doing something wrong. But all the other work you have to do outside of that, and that's you know creating, uh, creating a uh, almost a brand to let your partners know you know this is what we stand for, this is what we want you know we want our culture um, and build our culture within our firm um, of deliberate practice um, of uh, focused energy, and so that's that's something that. It, I guess it's building within any business, but when you start a firm, I always thought, you know, I'm going to be trading all the time, but actually all my time spent on really building the business, which, um, which I love, which is a good, good thing. But it's just one thing that you'd, you'd expect a little bit different when I got into it. I was like, well, I'll be trading all the time. And that's not the case at all. Mm, mm. And you made an interesting point earlier too, and I was, it was actually something I was going to ask you about is, um, as a fund, is it easier to raise capital uh, if you have a quantitative approach over something that is a little more discretionary, you know, I always thought that was perhaps the case, but you're saying it's, it's often quite the opposite. So, you know, that's, yeah, we've got, we've, we've kind of had, I guess it really depends. I mean, some people like quant strategies, um, but it, uh, we, we've, we've kind of seen it both ways, but really some of the big institutions really are still looking for your more fundamental bottom-up type investing, which is fine. Um, it, it's all good. But with us being quantitative, it's, it's, we've had a little bit uh, um, different, uh, I guess, results from it uh, with, with some of the larger institutions. Um, and, and, that's, and that's fine with us. I mean, again, we're going to be a little bit more esoteric. And within the option space, that's another thing that was pretty uh, interesting to me is even within the industry, the options still, people don't know a whole lot about options and how they really work. You know, they know a couple, a few strategies like a covered call or, or maybe, um, you know, doing covered calls or, or buying a call or a put. But when you get into complex option strategies, which is what we do, it's, it's, you know, we're talking with CIOs and, and of large institutions and having them take them through just like I would have to take my wife through or somebody that had no, nothing to do with the finance industry. So that's, there's a lot of education there. And I guess that's another a big thing is, is we're really having to educate people on, on how you can utilize options um, to be very creative and to reduce your risk in your portfolio, which a lot of people, when they hear options, they think risky, just like when they hear futures, they think risky. When in, in actuality, if you have no, someone that knows what they're doing, it reduces risk by quite a bit. So I, again, that's a big thing. It's just education within the finance industry, which I thought it would be just the opposite. I thought the finance industry would know all about it. But you know, with what we've seen, it's a lot of education, which is fine. We love educating people and talking shop. So that's not a problem with us. Sure, sure. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. 
not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So tell us a little bit about the actual strategy or strategies that you trade. Like how do you actually approach the market? Yeah, so we utilize complex option structures, and that's just kind of a fancy way of we put a bunch of options together to create a risk-reward structure that we want. And so kind of the basis in our bread and butter is what we call the Atlas strategy. And the Atlas strategy, kind of like I mentioned, is what I did is utilize the foundation of what my mentors would, would utilize with options. And they would have to have strategies that did well in all kinds of different environments, whether the market was going down or sideways, or if it's choppy or volatile, they needed something to do well because the way they made their money was off their gains. So if they didn't, you know, if they had any gains for the month and they didn't take home any money, so they didn't, they didn't have management fees or anything like that. So they had to be very creative and they utilized options to do this. So what I saw from my institutional experience was the traditional portfolio. Generally, they're not very diversified. I mean, people think they're diversified with stocks and bonds, but in actuality, they're not at all. And obviously, anybody can read anything Ray Dalio has printed and knowing how much risk just a, a stock portfolio has. So what I saw was we can really fill a large gap with creating what we, we call the Atlas strategy now. And what we utilize is options. And generally, we utilize it in what's called a butterfly structure. So if you're not familiar with complex options, um, a butterfly is basically just, you just we just do it in all puts. So you buy one put, you sell two, and you buy another one. And just graphically, it's got a wing, a body, and another wing. That's why it's called a butterfly, um, which doesn't really matter. All it is is we have a strategy and and in higher volatility, um, it does extremely well. So in an 08 type environment, 07 type environment, 2011, last year when the volatility was extremely high, it eats it alive. It, it really likes volatility. And the whole reason it does this is because we're a net seller of options. And if you know anything about insurance, when somebody's old and sick, their insurance premiums are higher versus someone that's young and healthy. Well, a volatile market's kind of like a sick market. So there's a lot of premiums and options. And so it's a lot easier for us to trade in that environment uh, versus like a 2013 type environment where there's very low volatility. It's a lot harder. It's more of a pain in the neck for us to trade in that. So what we've done is we created a mechanical strategy utilizing these options um, that we utilize in, in just a traditional portfolio. So our partners, limited partners, you know, we, we take a very small portion of their portfolio, no more than 10%, and but we outperform uh, with what we have. So we're not looking for 
five or six or seven percent returns a year. We're looking for twenty to thirty percent returns a year, and because we have a small portion of that portfolio and it can outperform and it outperforms when the rest of their portfolio is underperforming, it does an extremely good job of hedging the portfolio, but also gives them something that's growing at a, at a quicker rate than most of their other things in the portfolio. Because generally, you know, with stocks, you're going to look at about 7 8% annualized return uh, over about a 10-year period. So, we want to have something that's going to be a 20 25 30% annualized return over the same time uh, type period. So, that that's what we created uh, with the structure. Uh, and that's really kind of the, the purpose it serves within a portfolio. You know, a lot of our people, uh, they have maybe IRAs that they've, they've rolled over from a 401k or, or it's, a, it's a, small, a small piece of their portfolio and they, don't, they don't, aren't doing a whole lot with it. That's where we can really add value uh, to people is utilizing their small amounts in their portfolio. And also with institutions, we just give them a nice hedge to their long equity exposure. So that's really kind of where we fit within the game with our partners. Right. Okay. So you kind of outlined what you've labeled as your Atlas strategy there. Do you have any other strategies which maybe aren't like flagship strategies that you're also trading? Yeah, we so we constantly uh, are researching, trading, building new systems and strategies, um, and because even for our own book, so you know, for Blackbeard Capital's account, you know, we want to have stuff that hedges the Atlas strategy, right? So if it's going to do and in, well in volatility, or the market's going choppy sideways, we need something when the market's going up, right, or low volatility. So we've built. Uh, other strategies that do well, utilizing options. Um, that's really our expertise. Um, and we'll build using weeklies, um, which if you're not familiar with options, every option has an expiration period. And some of them have short expiration periods, like just a week, which are called weeklies. Some have long-term, where you may be 50 or 60 days to expiration. So we'll utilize kind of the entire game and, and, and really try to diversify our own book, utilizing different expiration periods, uh, with different strategies that do well in different types of environments. So when, when we kind of look at the environment scale, we kind of break it up in five different environments. So really, when we're in a position, the environment can be five different types. Uh, you can have a crash, market crash, or when it goes down hard. You can have a gradual downturn. You can have the market go sideways. You can have a gradual uh, up market, or you can have basically a sharp up market or where the market screams up. And really, those are about the only five things that can happen once we're in a strategy. So we build our strategies around um, our, our different systems in order to do well in those different type of environments and just really put them all together. Um, and, and because they're going to, not all of them are going to do well in every environment, but when you put them together in a portfolio, it does extremely well in diversifying your entire book, which is, which is kind of what we look for. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the mechanical aspect of your trading strategies. Like what's your preference for mechanical over strategies that um, require more discretion? Well, kind of what we found is, because I, I, I trade uh, discretionarily, I've traded uh, mechanically, and really what I've found is really great discretionary traders are mechanical in nature, meaning they have a strategy and they, or they have guidelines or a trade plan and they follow it. And that's really, when we, we say mechanical, that's all we're talking about. It's something that if you can't really give it to someone else to trade for you, or if you can't program into computer, then your trade plan's not clear enough. 
And whether it's discretionary, you, you call it discretionary or mechanical, it's basically just knowing what's going to happen or what what's going to make your decision or create an adjustment and what's not. And that's the whole purpose of this is so you're not making decisions on the fly. And the whole reason you don't want to do that, which every trader probably knows, is the whole emotional aspect of trading and what happens when you're losing money or you're making money and what your body does and what your brain does. Um, once you start getting aware of that, you know that you're not making your best decisions at that point. And so when we decided to really go mechanical, all we're saying is we want to have every decision made prior to having to make the decision. So prior to having to make an adjustment or take a profit. And we want it to be data-driven, meaning we want to have proof over you know something that's statistically relevant. And most of the time, that's 50 different observations that this works. Um, and so when we talk about being mechanical, all we know is we want the data to to be behind it, data-driven, uh, to prove that something works. And also, we don't want to be in a situation where we're having to think on the fly because your lizard brain takes over when you're doing that and you make terrible decisions. They're emotional decisions, and then you end up trading your emotions, not your strategy. Uh, and actually, one of my mentors kind of told me that at one point. You, when you get into that point, you're trading your emotions, not your strategy. And it took me about five years to figure out what he meant. Um, but it's an extremely powerful statement. And when you start getting aware of what happens when you trade, um, that's when you start figuring out and, and putting in firewalls in place, which is another thing we do, is really put firewalls in place to, to minimize and prevent mistakes during trading. Um, so I guess that kind of answers your question a little bit about mechanical versus discretionary. But one thing I will say is, is good discretionary traders, they basically they, they do the same thing, right? They, they have their trade plan, and the good ones follow it. And that's really all. So trading is very simple. Create a trade plan that has an edge, you know, that has positive expectancy, and then follow it. The first part's easy. The second part's not as easy. Following it, and uh, and that's where you get into uh, the the whole awareness and emotional part and, and trading the emotions. So that's a whole another discussion. <laughs> Absolutely. So while on the subject of mechanical uh, strategies, compared to an compared to a mechanical equity strategy, right? What additional complexities or considerations are there for backtesting and developing an options strategy? I guess the the big thing with backtesting any type of option strategy is the I guess with with future strategies, equity strategy, you can take 30 years, put in a computer, and it'll spit out, you know, if you put in certain parameters, what it would give you. With an option strategy, you actually go have to go by their hand by hand, day by day, to really get good, clean data. Uh, and, and you have the data, but really to see how the strategy would operate. And we have software that will do this. But what I thought was a constraint, what I thought was a kind of a pain, actually turned into a blessing because what it did was it created and forced us to see the, the results day by day, year after year, for 20 years. And so you get real, real comfortable with seeing how the strategy is going to work. And so with, I guess, an option, I, I guess with backtesting, there's not that much difference because you're, you're really, 
have the same goal and trying to get the data, but just the way you have to go about it with, with options, with more of a complex option strategy is a lot more time intensive from what I've seen. Now, I may be wrong on that. I mean, obviously, I don't, we haven't back tested every single strategy equity wise or options wise, but the way we do it is extremely time intensive. And we have Excel spread, we keep all our data um, in Excel spreadsheets and keep every single piece of data as part of the back test so that we know because what we found in back testing is we'll go in with with one theory or we may go in with say okay w- let's test this and then once the data kind of shows we'll gather the data and it's going to it tells us something totally opposite it tells us that what we thought was going to work it, it, the total opposite um it's very counterintuitive, which has really led to the Atlas strategy. We actually went into testing something um, that we were trying to hedge another strategy with, and the data came out to where this is what's kind of told us was an extremely impressive strategy. And then we dug more just in the data. So we didn't want to be biased with it. We just want to dig into what the data was telling us. And, and that's what's kind of interesting with our back testing is being so intensive uh, and, and going through it day by day, you know, hour after hour for years and years and years, you get such a good feel for your strategy and for your product that y- you really don't need models anymore. You just have such a good feel for it. So again, long answer, but I think the biggest thing is just the time intensity uh, that you have to put into the way we back test. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I'm, I'm just interested to know, where did you actually develop your, your skills using Excel? Was that something you picked up during your MBA or just something you've, you've picked up along the way? It, it, it came really uh, just from need uh, with work. And then we, we were very intense with it with, during the MBA program. That was one of the biggest things we picked up from that. Um, and then from that point is building trading models is just curiosity, just saying, okay, I need this data and I need it to be in, in some sort of model. So you'll dig in and being curious and using Excel. That's what's such great about Excel is it's very malleable. And so it was just really curiosity and f- kind of forcing myself to learn certain things because I needed it. I needed it for my trading model. Uh, so that's that's what I did. So it was a little bit of both, a little bit about uh, you know education from university, but also uh, a lot of it was just doing it on my own. I mean, I would go get... Uh, uh, macro books on macros and just go through the books and just take little tidbits of that, plug it in my sheet, see what would happen, kind of go from there. Uh, just like anything, just like trading, you just see what works and go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is there any reason why you've decided to run with Excel over using sort of other standalone or open source programming languages to do, I guess, uh, heavier sort of tasks? I guess it's just because I've I've known it and built on it. Um, it, it I don't think Excel would be any better or worse. Maybe um, I guess it's just learning a, a new language or, or getting into something else. We've actually started talking with a programmer to really program a lot of our execution, um, and he was going to be doing that with obviously different languages other than Excel. Uh, although we could build it in Excel, but for me, it's just I'm very familiar with it, Excel, so I just kind of continue building uh, on top of that. Now, Excel might be the worst tool in the, in the toolbox. I just haven't learned how to use any of the other tools. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So, I don't know if if you know of anything, but are there any resources you might be able to recommend to 
anyone listening to this podcast who might be interested in um, in using Excel to backtest and, and do different sorts of analysis on their trading? Yeah, and I will say this. Um, so we use, utilize Excel to gather the, like, so we, have a, we do have a third-party backtesting program. I probably did not mention that. So we use Option View for that. So to get our data um, and go through trades and actually to get the market data, knowing what the market prices would be for the last 10, 20, 30 years, we utilize Option View for that. For Excel, what we utilize that is, is to take all our findings and then utilize our, our basically Excel models in order to kind of get what the actual results would have been. And so it's a little bit of both. So we really gather the data utilizing option view. We capture it with Excel. So we utilize them both in tandem. Okay, cool, cool. Got it. All right, well, let's just change gears completely for the last part of this interview. So uh, before we hopped on a call, I was having a quick flick through uh, the blog on your website and there was uh, a few things that caught my attention. One was an article on deliberate practice. Could you explain the idea of deliberate practice and how it's different from practice just in a general sense? Yeah, deliberate practice um, is interesting. If anyone wants to read about deliberate practice, where I really got the concepts from was, um, it's actually uh, Andrews Erickson that I believe came up with kind of the the term deliberate practice. And then it's really talked about in um, the talent code and talent is overrated, those two books. And they go, they'll, they'll do a lot better job of, of explaining it over me. But really what you're talking about and the best kind of the way I, I put it example wise is the difference between how, you know, a Tiger Woods in his prime would practice at a, at a, at, a, at golf, let's say we're at a, a, a driving range and he's practicing his game versus the way I would practice. And so I've been playing golf probably the same amount of time as Tiger Woods has, yet I'm nowhere close to the way he is. And why is that? Well, it's the way we've gone about practicing. And so when he goes about on the driving range, he's really got a goal for every single ball he hits. Uh, he knows exactly what he's working on. He's got a goal for the practice going in. He's got a goal for pretty much every ball he hits and every swing he takes. Versus when I go to the driving range, I may be drinking a beer, you know. I may be uh, just hitting balls, trying to hit a certain sign out there. It's just totally, totally different. I don't have goals, really specific goals going into what I'm working on in the driving range. And that's really the exact kind of example kind of we try to use with everything we do in the firm is when we're going into something, especially trading is, is a fantastic example for this, is have a specific purpose for what you're trying to do with anything. Really, if you're, if you're going into a task, what are you trying to get out of it? Why are you doing it? Um, and, and that will really focus you in, in really figuring out, well, first of all, is, do I need to be doing this task? Is it, is it the right, uh, am I doing it the right way? And you'll start being a lot more focused. And when you are focused on that task, you get better you get 50 times better than if you just went about it, which the way most people go about anything, kind of like I go about golf. So kind of willy nilly, you don't really think too much about it. You just go into the task in order to get through it. Um, so I guess that's kind of a, uh, I don't know if it's a, a good example of, of what deliberate practice is, but it's really just having a goal for whatever you're doing at the time. And if you kind of keep that in mind for everything you're doing, you, you start really focusing on how you spend your time, um, which is, which is a huge deal. And in trading, 
just like any sport, you know, I come from the athletics background, trading, music, sports, they all have very, very uh, easy, it's very easy to attribute deliberate practice to it. So when we're back testing, you know, we want to be very focused on exactly what we're trying to get out of what is our goal for the back test? You know, what is our theories going in? What type of strategy are we trying to get out? Why are we trying to get out of it? You know, what type of data are we trying to get? So all this stuff, that goes into back testing, and when you pull out of it, um, you get an extreme amount of information, and you get so much better as a trader um, or anything you're doing. So it's extremely important, I think, for anybody to be very, very good at what they do. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant answer, Ryan. I really like the analogy with Tiger Woods. I think that was that was well suited. Um, the other thing that caught my attention while I was on your blog uh, was an article about recognizing mental frustration and discomfort as a positive thing. Um, I'd love it if you could talk about this a little bit, like how so? Yeah, this is, this is pretty interesting. It's, it's really hard because kind of the human condition. We grow, the only time we grow is when, when we're really working hard on something and that frustration, um, that's when you're, that's where you want to be. And when we kind of wrote that article and I looked back at my life and, and you always do it. I mean, any trader can say it. I mean, every trader knows their biggest losses that you can, you can crystallize them in their head. It's, it's amazing. And why is that? Because you feel the frustration and you want to figure out why you had those losses and think about anything in your life. Everyone, when they go through their hardest times, that's when they grow the most. And so, Really, when when I wrote that article, it kind of had an epiphany of saying, "Well, what if I looked at my life and uh, really designed it every single day to have some period during the day to where I was growing?" Now, when I'm growing, just like if you're working out, if you're doing a good workout, you're going to push yourself, and it's going to be extremely uncomfortable. But that's where the growth comes mentally, um, you know, when you're learning a language and the, the words on the tip of your tongue, that's where the growth is because that's the brain stretching. That's the brain creating new pathways, new neural pathways for that new language. And what a lot of people, what we found is a lot of people structure their day to avoid frustration, to avoid pain, to avoid hard situations. And that's exactly how they're going to grow. And so we want to flip-flop that and, you know, as a firm, like Pure Capital is try to create situations for us is to be frustrated. Now, when we, when we, when I think back to, um, you know, creating the Atlas strategy, we had so many days where we would work on this thing and you talk about deliberate practice, I mean, cranking on these back tests and getting data and data and getting so frustrated because, the, the ideas we had, we thought something was going to work and it totally didn't, it, you know, it, the data said something totally opposite. And so we're back to square one and you get so frustrated with that, especially the, the 10th or 11th or the 13th time it's happened. But looking back on it now, that's what created the robust strategy. If we hadn't had that happen, we wouldn't have the conviction in the strategy we have in now. We couldn't go to a client and said, we've done the work on this and we know the million ways it doesn't work because we went through them, but it's the frustration that got us there. That was the growth. And another one other thing about deliberate practice, you know, you're doing deliberate practice, right? When you can only do it for two or three hours, because after that you're so focused, your body gets tired, your mind gets tired, you know, and when you read the books about deliberate practice, 
you read about you know high you know the world class violinist they can only practice for a couple hours because they're so focused in doing it that that's all your brain and your body can handle and so that's kind of what we utilize that as so so we kind of were asking ourselves so what if we get frustrated every day that means we're growing every day and i don't care if it's physically you know working out we work out quite a bit or if it's mentally or if it's working on our trading but just grow every single day but knowing that you know when you're in that frustration when you have a loss and you're frustrated just the sheer fact of knowing that that's the growth it makes it a little bit easier to get through it as well. So, you know, I think that's a very important concept for people to utilize because most people seek out comfort and that's not, that's not how you get better is through comfort. You get better through pain and discomfort. Um, and that's, it's hard for most people, but it creates a huge opportunity for people that will kind of put themselves through that and will just kind of realize that, you know what, this is the way I'm going to be able to get to my goals. And if I want hockey stick like growth where it shoots, then I need to be extremely uncomfortable. And the Navy SEALs are just, I mean, they're unbelievable at that. I mean, they are the premier example for being uncomfortable and how you can push your body, mind, spirit, everything through discomfort, an incredible amount of growth. So I think that's an important article. You know, I, uh, we kind of had an epiphany and we're like, you know, I think this would be helpful to people. So I think it's pretty helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was another awesome answer, Ryan. Um, and what I'll do is I'll put links to both of those articles in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com. Uh, if you guys want to check that out. So man, this has been awesome. Where is the best place that listeners can find out more about you, Ryan? Yeah, well, um, they can definitely go to our website. Obviously, you can, if you have links to the articles, that would take us to take them to the blog on our website. Um, they can sign up and subscribe to our blog. We send out uh, updates every week. And on the weekly updates, we actually talk about everything from trading um, to personal development. Um, one thing that you know, I really talk about a lot is trading is uh, 90% figuring out and being aware of who you are. And the other 10% is the strategy. Um, because if you're fully aware of who you are, what your strengths are, why you're trading, um, then the actual trading part is, is a lot more simple. Um, you know, a, a lot of times we look to work with people. We're actually looking um, for a few people to uh, actually coach a little bit, to uh, maybe confer with, uh, mentor a little bit. So um, if anyone's interested in that, um, we'd be uh, willing to kind of take a look at that. Um, this is going to be very, very specific. Uh, we're not looking for a bunch of people, um, and it's, it's, it's going to be quite intensive. Um, so yeah, so blackbeardcapital.com and sign up subscriber. And that way, uh, they can also hit me up on my email if, if, if they need to get uh, me directly. And that's just uh, rmoffet at blackpeercapital.com. And um, if uh, it's R-M-O-F-F-E-T-T at blackpeercapital.com. So those two places, and you know, we'll be um, kind of uh, all over the place. So if they have any questions or anything, we, you know, we love to talk shop, uh, whether it's futures, options, equities, we love trading. So uh, it's, it's my passion. So whatever they have, we'd love to talk to them. Good stuff. And are you also on Twitter? Uh, we are. I believe it is uh, Blackpeer LP. So at Blackpeer LP is our Twitter handle. I believe that's it. So um, yeah, if if you want to follow us, we'd love to. We again send out tweets on all kinds of stuff. So uh, we'd love to uh, hear from you. Perfect. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you very much for doing this, man. It's been a blast, and um, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you so much. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. 
But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Oh, 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 oh